Let me pray before we get into this. Our great God, these vivid and powerful images, mysterious, lovely, beautiful, mystifying. I pray, God, that in the teaching of your word, you would open our eyes, open our ears, revive our imagination, that we might see what is true. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Lately, uh, Allison, my wife and I, we have been watching um, British crime dramas. I don't know how we got into this, but we've been watching British crime dramas. And she got ahead of me on one, and last night was watching, and I was supposed to be writing a sermon, finishing this sermon, and, but I, I watched like two seconds, and I just got sucked in, right? I started watching this episode, I'm like, how is it going to end? I got to know, how does this story end? And so I watched the rest of the episode, I and mean, this is like key, Saturday night is like key sermon writing time for me, but I had to know, how does this story, how does it end? We're in the last sermon in a sermon series that we have called God's Big Picture. And our hope in this sermon series is to be at like 30,000 feet, to literally go through the entire Bible. The last thing I'm going to say today is the last verse in the Bible. And eight weeks ago, we started with the very first verse in the Bible, 66 books. We've covered it in eight weeks. And what we've contended is that the Bible tells one story, God's Big Picture, and the way we've summarized it following uh, a man named Vaughn Roberts is this, it is the story of God's people living in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That that's how you can summarize the whole Bible. God's people living in God's place under God's rule and his blessing. Now a visual summary of the Bible is what I have printed in the bulletin today. And this actually is somewhat of a depiction of the sermon series. Real quickly, the very first line in this little wedge in the bulletin is the story of creation, the creation of our first parents, Adam and Eve, who lived in God's place under God's rule and blessing. The squiggly line, the second line, is our first parents fall into rebellion and sin. The third line there, called the line of Abram there, is when God calls this pagan worshiping, this moon worshiping guy named Abram to be the one through whom the blessing will come to the world, the story of Abram. The following, we look, uh, after that sermon, we looked at uh, Moses and David. Those are lines four and five and how they moved forward this story of God's people and God's place under God's blessing with God's authority. Last week, Nick looked at Jesus, the bold line, and how he is the fulfillment of all the Jewish prophecies, all the Old Testament prophecies. And this week, we come to the dotted line, the future, how the story ends. Because to understand the whole thing, you got to know how does this story end? What happens. What happens? Now, we're actually not at the end of the story. We live in the messy middle, to quote Andrew. We are in the middle. We're not quite to that dotted line. But what does happen at the end of the story between the thick line of Jesus in your bulletin and the dotted line? Uh, Because we always want to know what is the end of the story. And you especially want to know the end of the story if you're actually in the story. And if you're a follower of Jesus, actually, if you're just a human being, you're in this story. This is a story that you're a part of. And so what does it look like for this story to come to an end? So today, again, is my attempt to preach one sermon on the entire last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, how things end, and actually how things are now. Now, I have loved uh, doing some kind of cursory study of the book of Revelation, and I'm indebted to a couple of folks I want to just name out front, um, a guy named Mark Davis, Jason Sterling, The Bible Project Online, and a scholar named Daryl Johnson who have helped me put this together. And Daryl Johnson says this. 
He's a Bible scholar, a preacher, and he says that of all, there's 66 books in the Bible. And he said if someone came to his door, some kind of persecutor came to his door and said, you can only have one of the 66 books of the Bible. You can only have one. You can't have the whole Bible, you can only have one book. He said, I would choose the book of Revelation. And this is why he says, why? Because no other book of the Bible presents the gospel as powerfully as Revelation. No other book of the Bible, in fact, of all that threatens to undo us, proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ the way Revelation does. And he goes on to say that no book of the Bible portrays Jesus and his good news more clearly and more compellingly than the book of Revelation. So this morning, quickly, hopefully thoroughly, I want to look at the background of Revelation. I want to look at the nature of the book of Revelation or the genre And then finally, some images from the book of Revelation. First, the background of Revelation. Now, we didn't read it aloud, but chapter 1, verse 9 would tell us that this book was written by the apostle John, the beloved apostle, and he is in exile on an island called Patmos, okay? Now, the apostle John is most likely the beloved disciple of Jesus, Uh, the author of the Gospel of John, if you know the earlier New Testament books. And he's writing from an island called Patmos, which is off the coast of Turkey or Asia Minor, okay? And he's not there because of his own free will. He's not there, you know, on a Greek Isles tour. Uh, He has been placed there. He is basically in prison, in political exile. It's an island. You think of the way that Alcatraz, have you ever been to Alcatraz, the, the prison island in San Francisco Bay? It's the equivalent of that. It's an island prison off the coast of modern day Turkey. This book is written most likely in the 90s AD, which is to say 60 or so years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. At this time of the writing, the emperor of Rome is a man named Domitian. Now, Domitian is not a particularly attractive figure. He's a squirrely figure. He's he's insecure. In fact, he's so insecure that to make himself feel good about himself, he demanded that all the subjects in in the Roman Empire worship him as a god. They had to worship him. They had to say, Caesar, that was his title, the king, Caesar, is Lord. Now, for the average Roman citizen, that wasn't a huge deal to call Caesar Lord. They were polytheists. They had many gods they worshipped. And so just to take a little extra incense and just throw it at the altar and say, okay, we worship you, Caesar is Lord, they'd go about that. Not a big deal for the average Roman citizen because they already had so many gods. But for Christians, it's not so easy. Now, the New Testament is super clear. Whether it's the emperor, the governor, government, whatever you want to say, we are called to honor. We're called to pray for the government, for the emperor in this case. We're called to pay taxes. But to worship, no, no. That is going too far. And many Christians have refused to say Caesar is Lord and they're being persecuted. And John, the writer of this gospel, or this book, he has refused to say Caesar is Lord. And because he's refused to say it, he has been exiled, politically exiled, to the island of Patmos. So he's in exile. Many Christians are suffering. They're going to prison and being killed under the rule of Domitian. Now, the Apostle John is a lovely figure in so many ways, and he is a pastor. And he has a pastor's heart. So despite the fact that he is on an island prison, his eyes, the eyes of his heart are cast back towards Asia Minor, towards Turkey, particularly towards seven churches that are just over the sea from where he is. The seven churches of Revelation. Now remember, John, you may not know this, but John is the last of the Lord's disciples. Jesus had 12 disciples. All of them are dead except John. Most of them had been killed violently. Peter and Paul 
by this point, Peter and Paul, we, we know those guys, they've been dead for 30 years, okay? And with this new round of persecution by this Roman emperor, this is the last person, one of the last people, maybe the last, who actually saw Jesus in the flesh with his own eyes. And imagine you're in the 90s, you're being persecuted. If you're the Christian church, things are not looking good. All the founders, the founding generation is basically dead. John is in exile. Okay, in fact, the setting of this book seems to be a negation of Christianity, a negation of the claims of the gospel. Jesus had opened his ministry in Mark chapter 1 by saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Where? (laughs) Where is the kingdom, right? They've been told to say, Jesus is Lord. Well, where's the evidence The church is operating behind closed doors. Immorality is rising up in the churches. John, this beloved pastor and bishop, is in exile. The last of the disciples, the rest of them have been killed mostly violently. Where is Jesus? What is going on? Christians being killed, exiled, imprisoned, persecuted, which is to say they are suffering terribly, is my friend Jason Sterling says, Christianity was no longer working. It looks like evil is winning. And some were ready to give up. And maybe because of the suffering, many of the Christians are starting to compromise morally. If you read through the book, you see that there's an indulgence among the Christians of that century, of that decade. An immorality. They've become apathetic and ambivalent. John says this about the churches. They've lost their first love. They appear to be alive, but they are dead. In one of his more vivid images, he says, they are neither hot nor cold. They are lukewarm, ambivalent, apathetic, indulgent, immoral. So again, Jason Sterling, in other words, it's not that Christianity was no longer working, but Christianity was no longer interesting. It's being choked out by the cares of the world. And so John is on this rocky island of Patmos, and his heart longs for the people of these churches. They're suffering terribly. They're beginning to compromise morally, and they're living lifelessly. And as he worships and as John prays, God gives him a vision. He gives him a vision that is a message for those Christians and for us, those suffering being tempted, those living lifelessly. Now, it's not just the content. It's not just the content of the message of John and Revelation that matters. It's how they receive it, which is to say, in many ways, the book of Revelation, this is true of all the scriptures, it's about how it makes them feel, okay? So before we talk about the images and the message, let's talk about the nature of Revelation because this this is a weird book. This is a, you heard it in some of the readings I just did. Because the nature of this book, the message of Revelation, are these vivid images. Just consider chapter 1. I'll give you a handful of them. It says, there's one like a son of man who's standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands, holding seven stars in his right hand. Chapter 4, there's a throne, and it's surrounded by four different creatures, and the creatures all have eyes all over their bodies. Chapter 12 There's a great red dragon trying to kill a baby. 
Chapter 13, there's a beast from the sea who has ten horns and seven heads. And then there's another beast that's from the earth who has two horns. Strange, bizarre images. And with images like this, I think the first temptation is to try to crack the code. You know, what's the decoder? You know, how do I, what's the cipher here? What does that mean? Uh, I was raised in, in a particular type of church. There's all the, when you came to Revelation, there's these charts and graphs explaining everything, you know. Uh, people were saying that the locust in here, they were Apache-style Soviet attack helicopters. They said that Ronald, Reagan, Ronald Wilson Reagan was the Antichrist because each of his names had six letters, six, six, six. Not to mention that there's English, Greek, different, you know, whatever. But um, <laughs> Revelation is not a code to be cracked. This book is not a code to be cracked. The very name, Revelation, reveal. This is about not concealing, but revealing. Revelation is not meant to confuse you. Revelation is meant to clarify for you. And the proof of this is in the very first phrase of the book. Chapter 1 Verse 1, I think it's on page 1028. I don't have it written down here. I think it's page 1028 in your Bibles. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the word revelation, literally, in the Greek, it's apocalypsis, apocalypse. And apocalypse means unveiling or disclosure. A modern way to translate this Bible uh, would be to say something like the lifting of the cover or the pulling back of the curtain. Or the opening up of Jesus Christ. Apocalyptic literature is designed to reveal the truth about both the future and, as we will see, the present. Revelation is designed to show us that things are more than they seem. Revelation is to open our eyes, open our eyes to unseen realities. Let me illustrate this from the Bible. In the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 6, there's a story of the great prophet Elisha. Elisha is this powerful person. And it's a story of Elisha and his servant. And they wake up one morning and their city is surrounded by an enemy army. They are surrounded and the servant freaks out. Elisha's servant, he freaks out. He is quaking with fear. And then Elisha says to his servant, he says, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us, they're surrounded by enemies. Sur the city is surrounded. And Elisha says, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I'm like, What are you talking about, Willis? I mean, like, the servant's like, What? That's a 1980s reference. I'm uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> He, what are you talking about, Elisha? We are surrounded, and you're saying there are more who are with us than against us? And then Elisha prays, and his servant's eyes are opened. And as his eyes are opened, he sees that around that enemy army are an army of God's angels and chariots of fire. His eyes, the servant's eyes, are opened to unseen realities. And friends, for people who are suffering for their faith, who are starting to give up on their faith. What Jesus does for these first readers and for you and me, suffering, tempted to give up, is he pulls back the curtain and lets us in on the unseen reality that is true today and is true in the future. 
That's what Jesus is doing here. He's pulling back the curtain so you can see what is really true right now. Now, significantly, Revelation does not use propositional truth so much. It doesn't even use emotional pleas. Revelation communicates via images. Via images, because there's something about images that just gets to our gut. It engages us in ways that move us. That it move us emotionally, but also move us into action. Images are powerful. And they have a way of sliding by the intellect and around the emotions to get to the heart of who we are. In the uh, 1950s, the civil rights movement, the civil rights movement was not uh, getting the traction that some hoped it would. Uh, But the 1960s, the civil rights movement took off. And in many ways, the civil rights movement took off because of images. The images of an elderly woman who had worked all day who wouldn't give up her seat on a bus. That image is still seared in the American consciousness of Rosa Parks not giving up her seat. The image of the great Martin Luther King Jr. and his image-rich language. He told Americans about his dream. He spoke of a stone of hope being hewn out of a mountain of despair. And that vivid image of little black boys and little black girls joining hands with little black bo- white boys and little white girls. Images. But then there's this. In many ways, the civil rights movement took real momentum when the activists allowed themselves to be beaten in front of cameras. Because they knew that the printed word would not get the people off their couches. But when you have pictures of dogs attacking peaceful protesters, that gets to people. That moves them. And Revelation gives us these powerful images of Jesus to get to our gut, to call us to be faithful, to encourage us, to challenge us, and ultimately to move us. The the crazy thing about Revelation is there's almost nothing new in the book of Revelation. All the doctrine about Jesus, there's almost nothing new here. It's all just being put in this vivid, evocative form of images, and it's, no, it's not new information, but it is designed to revive our imaginations. So in closing, I want to look at three images quite briefly. These are images that God gave to these people who are suffering, who are losing hope, who are beginning to drift away, and these are three images that you can take with you this week into your life. The first image is from Revelation chapter 5. Now, I read this a moment ago in Revelation chapter 4. Uh, it's this fascinating passage. I think it's 1030. I should have written these things down. Revelation chapter 4 is the picture of an open door to heaven. And through that open door, there is a throne room. It is the throne room of God Almighty. And there are creatures and there are elders and there are worshiping God on his throne. Okay, so the throne room of God, chapter 4. Then chapter 5 are the verses that I read. And God sees... Excuse me, John sees that the God who is on the throne has a scroll. This is verse 1. He has a scroll in his hand. But no one is able to open or to read the scroll. Now, this is kind of a weird dream at this point, okay? And John starts to cry. John starts to weep loudly, it says, because no one can open or read the scroll, which tells what is to come. And then verse 5, an elder says, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So let's say with me, 
What John hears, what he, I love this, what he hears is of a lion. He hears of the kingly lion of David. He hears of this strong lion who is conquered. But what does it look like? What does the king of David look like? Verse 6, it looks like a lamb standing as though slain upon the throne, taking the scroll. A lamb that was slain upon the throne, taking the scroll. And then the heavenly chorus says, Worthy are you to open the lamb, to open the scroll, and to be worshipped. They're singing that to a slain lamb. You see, some of John's readers, and maybe you today, are sliding away from their faith. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you would like to believe in God, but maybe you believe that you've done something that is so bad that God can never forgive you. And to those who cannot shake the guilt of their sin, if you can't shake the guilt of your sin, Revelation doesn't just say you're forgiven. It doesn't just say you're forgiven, go in peace. John says, come here, come with me, and let me show you this image of a lamb upon a throne who is slain. He's slain for your sins. He's for your sins. He's on a throne because he conquers. That lamb has conquered evil, forgiven sin, and he sits upon the throne. If you are enmeshed in your guilt, the book of Revelation doesn't just say your sins are forgiven. It gives you an image of the lamb upon the throne. It says, look at him, what he has done for you and for me. Image number two. I heard a great sermon two weeks ago. We were visiting my parents in Dallas. My parents' pastor is a man named Mark Davis. He preached on Revelation chapter 10. Look with me, page 1033. There's a lot going on in Revelation chapter 10. I love this image, though. Uh, verse 1, it says there's this mighty angel who's come down. He's wrapped in a cloud. I don't even know how to picture this. There's a rainbow over his head. His face is like the sun. His legs are like pillars of fire. He has a little scroll in his hand. I believe this angel is Jesus. It's the same scroll from Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. But what matters, and what the image I want to capture your imagination with this morning is verse 2, that he has his right foot on the sea and he has his left foot on the land. And in verse 5, he raises his hand to heaven. Now, the image of feet upon land and sea with a hand raised, this suggests conquest, victory, that God is in control, both of the land and of the sea and of the heaven. I love to play uh, basketball, still play it a little bit. And in basketball, the ultimate sign of conquest, the ultimate sign of conquest is you make a move, you make your shot, and then you step over your opponent. <laughs> it's a move that was made famous by Allen Iverson. Allen Iverson stepping over, right? Well, Revelation is pulling the curtain back so that you can see this is true right now. Jesus' feet are on the land and on the sea. He has conquered. He is victorious. And this, friends, is not just the future. It is now. He's pulling back the curtain. So one of the things I want you to think of this week are Jesus' feet upon the land and upon the sea. Because if this morning or this week you're afraid of the ascendance of evil in the world, you're afraid of where the culture is headed, you're afraid of war in Ukraine, Taiwan, the Middle East. You're afraid in a presidential election of year where America may or may not be headed. You're afraid of Christians being persecuted. Revelation doesn't just say, don't be afraid. It doesn't just say, don't be afraid. It says, come, look with me. 
at the one whose feet are on land and on sea, who is conquered and is victorious. Look, look at the conquering victor. I'm looking forward to watching. I have not yet seen the Masters of the Air. I know some of you have been watching Masters of the Air, the Apple TV series about the B-17 heavy bomber unit in World War II. And as I've heard some of you talking about it, it's reminded me of, I was a history major in college, and it reminds me of D-Day, June 1944. Some of you would know this, but on D-Day, June 6, 1944, the ground troops, the troops who were going all, you know, the amphibious assault, they were taking the beaches, they were scaling the cliffs, they were taking fire, and they were taking huge losses. And the, from the perspective of the ground, the thought was, we cannot win. we got to go up that cliff? No way. But the pilots... The pilots who were flying over, they could see the reality. We cannot lose. We will certainly win. Revelation is pulling back the curtain and letting us see who sits on the throne, whose feet are on the land and the sea, who has won and is winning and will win in the end. It is a pulling back of the curtain. You see with these images, you see what Jesus is doing? He is stealing the weapons of fear. He's stealing the weapons of fear. Fear is powerful. Fear keeps you from doing the right thing. Fear makes you do the wrong thing. The fear of critics, the fear of losing money, the fear of rejection, the fear of pain, the fear, the fear, the fear. The only way to overcome fear, the only way to overcome fear is to see your present reality, whatever it is, in light of this reality, that Jesus' feet are on the land and on the sea. He has conquered. Third and final image, and this one I'm just going to read and make a brief comment on. I didn't read this earlier, and you can look at it later. I actually just want you to listen this time, though. Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read the first six verses of Revelation 21. Just listen to these verses and let these images hits you. If you want to go back and look later, Revelation 21, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He also said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Friends, if you are suffering, if you're in pain, if you or someone you love are sick, if your heart is broken, Don, John doesn't just say it'll be okay. Just suffer through it. Just hold on. He doesn't just say that. He says, come here. Come with me. And look to the future, to the way when the new heavens will become the new earth, where Jesus will wipe away from the tears from our eyes. There will be no more sickness. 
no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. That is the hope of the Christian gospel. Look at that image. A lamb slain upon a throne. Feet upon the land and the sea. A new heaven, a new city upon this earth. You see, friends, God's good picture, his big picture, and the end of the story is and will be God's people in God's place under God's rule and God's a blessing. And it seems appropriate that we would close this sermon series with the very last two verses from all of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And John replies, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this clear and compelling book of Revelation that shows us these images. And I pray that they would get past our intellect and even our emotions and get to our gut, the heart of who we are, to challenge us, to encourage us, to move us. For your name's sake we pray. Amen.